Well, good morning. We are thankful that you are here this morning, that you have joined us here in our auditorium for our worship service. But as we will continue to say for some time, we're thankful if you're tuning in online as well. We're thankful for that kind of medium that we're able to share in this time of study together. Things certainly tend, uh, continue to be uncertain, and that makes us a little nervous. But we're thankful for at least this time that we can spend together in studying the Bible studying together, thinking about God's Word, and that should be encouraging to us. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but if you'll allow me to reiterate three things that Brother Jeff did mention. Uh, First of all, I missed a call from our sister Brenda Shipley yesterday, but she left me a message saying that uh, Son has been pretty down lately. Of course, they're separated now. She tries to go visit him every day, uh, but he's been down a little bit through all the things that have been going on. So I would encourage you and ask you, many of you in our congregation are already excellent at sending many cards. But if you have a chance, maybe in the next week or so, send a card to our brother's son and certainly to Miss Brenda as well. They could certainly use our encouragement. Uh, Number two, if uh, you would, on the way out, grab one of those flyers that we talked about for our giveaway. We know that this has been a time of uncertainty and a lot of things have been stopped. And one of the things that we would like to do is try to meet anyone's physical need, if at all possible. And so if you can help, first of all, certainly uh, talk to uh, Sandra or to Santana, and they'd love your help. Um, But we want to be able to do that and reach as many people as possible. We'll begin sharing that, hopefully, tomorrow and the next week, the coming week, uh, on our social media pages. So if you are part of Facebook and can do that as well, we want to get the word out so that we can help the people in our community. The third thing that's in the bulletin as well is the polishing the pulpit that is, of course, virtual this year. Uh, Several of us get to attend. Uh, If things had been as normal, we would have begun this Wednesday with the early session. It would have gone through this coming weekend and into next week. And many of us are sad to not be able to go and attend that. But the good news is that this year, all of us can attend together online. And beginning Friday... My understanding is there will be almost 300 videos, maybe not all on Friday, but released over several days, but you have an opportunity to view that. We are very, very thankful to our eldership for being able to uh, subscribe to that service for us. There are countless hours already on that service for you to view. Classes, ladies' classes, all kinds of topics are covered. But certainly this year they're going to be adding all of these videos online. Uh, If you need help, certainly see Brian or Heath or myself or anyone, and we'd gladly help you. A lot of those are available for download. Certainly the audio, you can download them to your phone. You can listen to them then as you're working or as you're doing things. Just a great, great service, and we hope that you'll take advantage of that. We will be reminding you of that. Uh, over the coming week, but beginning this Friday, there will be a lot of new things associated with this year's polishing the pulpit. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, to give an answer. Apologia is what we've been talking about now. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're going to go back to the well one more time. I had not planned to, but this is one of my favorite lessons to give, to deliver. I did it several years ago, and I want us to talk about it this morning. I don't know if you understand the importance of one of these little books. Many of you have one in your lap or in your hand right now. Some of you have it digitally, and that's certainly fine as well. We appreciate the opportunity to at any point open up our phone or one of our devices and be able to read the Word of God. But I think that makes us not take it Uh, seriously sometimes. We take it for granted because it's so easily accessible to us. If you're like our family, and many of you are, you probably have upwards of at least five, if not double digits, ten or more Bibles laying around the house, many of them collecting dust because you have one or two that are your favorites, and that's perfectly fine. But I think we forget the importance of the Word of God. 
We've talked about the importance of apologetics a few weeks ago. We've talked about the life of Jesus, and we've even talked a little bit about several things that have to do with apologetics. And one of those things that we've touched on in just a short way is the Bible. You see, a couple of weeks ago, as we talked about Jesus, we talked about prophecies. That's one way that we prove the inspiration of the Bible. Another way is we talk about the manuscripts. We mentioned that again a few weeks ago. And the idea that there are so many manuscripts out there, copies of the Bible that we can turn to. And when we think about all of these things, including last week, as we thought about a very serious matter, something that we still go through of evil, pain, and suffering, it's something for us to consider as we think about not only the Bible, but certainly the God of heaven. This week we want to begin talking about it, and we're going to try to get through all of it this week if we can, but the idea of the Bible and science. It's one of those things that we can use, we don't often think about when we think about the Word of God. When we say science, we want to keep them separate, even as last week we talked about Charles Darwin and, and Thomas Huxley and some of those people, we say science in the Bible. Actually, as we're going to see this morning, they can go together. And this is, this is one of my favorite lessons to present because the information is so interesting as we think about what the Bible has to say about science. I I do want to say as we begin, I am certainly not a scientist. As many of you do as well, I rely heavily upon our brother Kyle Butt and the folks at Apologetics Press and many others who do the work and put together the information. And in fact, part of this lesson, the main part of it is going to come from a lesson that I was able to present about seven years ago with the Apologetics Press VBS material that they had put out. So I'm very thankful for good folks who do that kind of study and allow us to glean from that. The argument goes something like this as we think about the Bible and science. The Bible is certainly not a scientific or medical textbook, all right? It doesn't claim to be that. If you go to school and you take a science class, more than likely the first thing that you're going to study and the book that you're going to to look at is not going to be the Bible. And that's certainly okay in a sense. The Bible is not a medical or scientific textbook. But the argument goes something like this. Even though it's not, what we're talking about is the inspiration of the Bible. And if the Bible is infallible, and I put a slash there if you will, but the if the Bible is the infallible word of God or the inspired word of God, spoken by God, God breathed. It's not written by men with their own thoughts in a sense, but it's written by God. It's not a medical or scientific textbook, but if it is infallible, if it doesn't contain any errors, and if it is the word of God, inspired of God, then it will not contain the errors of fallible men. Now, when we think about this, we're going to come back to this towards the end of our lesson. So sort of hold that in your your brain, if you will. But this really kind of covers everything, but it's really going to make sense as we come back to our third point. We're going to have three main points this morning to think about when it comes to the Bible and science. The first one this morning, well, excuse me, I'll add this in here in in connection with that. If the omniscient ruler of the universe, talking about the Bible being inspired, if the omniscient ruler of the universe actually did inspire these books, then the scientific and the medical errors from other ancient non-inspired texts should be absent from the Bible. I know it's a lot of words on the screen there and we have to kind of comprehend it, but we think about the idea that we have the Bible and we have other documents. If the Bible is infallible, if it's inspired of God, it's not going to contain errors that other ancient documents have. See, we have lots of manuscripts of the Bible. 
we also have manuscripts of other documents, including those from Egypt. And that's what we're going to come back to in the last point. But there are errors in those. And if the Bible is inspired, if it does not have any errors, it won't contain those same errors that are there in other ancient non-inspired texts. So number one, our first point this morning is it's what's for dinner. Some of you may recall, and, and we begin to date ourselves and age ourselves when we think about things. Uh, some of you may recall the old beef ads from the early 90s. Beef, it's what's for dinner. The commercials and things that were out there. I'm looking at a lot of faces that have no idea about the 90s and those things that were then. But you may recall those commercials. It was certainly stuck in my brain as I was thinking about what to title this first point. But what we're going to talk about is some of the dietary restrictions in the idea of science. We include dietary nutrition things when it comes to science. So let's talk about some of those. The first one is fish. Fish. When we think about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic criteria for things, the Mosaic criteria for eating water-living creatures was that the creatures have scales and Fins. You see that there on the screen, Leviticus chapter 11 and verse number 12. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. This was extremely beneficial, of course, for the children of Israel as you think about what is in front of them and what they're going to have an opportunity to eat. So I've got a couple of listed here for you. Number one, we think about the blowfish or the puffer fish. And if you're making notes kind of outside your outline, you can write that down. The blowfish has fins but does not have scales. Thus, it would not have been edible under the Old Testament laws. And that was, of course, a fortunate thing for the Israelites. The blowfish can contain toxin in its ovaries, liver, and other organs that is highly potent and deadly. In fact, and i got to read a lot of this because I wasn't going to remember it all, but this toxin called tetrodotoxin is thought to be 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. And 160,000, that's 160,000 times more potent than cocaine. A very small amount of it, like even just a tiny amount of it, can kill 30 grown adults. And as odd as it sounds, the blowfish is still even used today in some places as a delicacy. There are certain chefs that have to be certified in order to prepare it to be sure that this toxin does not make its way into the person who is going to be eating this particular blowfish or puffer fish. In fact, due to the extreme danger in Involved in eating this, it is illegal to serve it to the emperor of Japan. The mosaic, instruct, mosaic instructions concerning what you could eat when it came to fish would have helped the Israelites avoid this. I mean, God wasn't going to explain everything to do with toxins. He simply says, whatever in the water does not have fins or scales shall be an abomination to you. We think about the blowfish, but think secondly about shellfish. Anybody here enjoy eating shellfish? Although they're certainly edible today, there are inherent dangers in eating ill-prepared types such as oyster, oysters. The U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, in fact, I didn't know this, has a 12-page pamphlet for you to read regarding the dangers of eating oysters. If they're not cooked properly, they can be fatal. You can have all kinds of diseases that come from doing that. Once again, God in his all-knowing power is able to simply say what is said in Leviticus chapter 11 in verse number 12 and leave it at that. That's not the only thing. Number two, we would add in reptiles. 
under what's for dinner, or certainly in this case, what's not going to be coming to dinner. With my apologies to Carter and Lila and Jacob and many others that own reptiles at this time, reptiles were not going to be eating, eaten by the children of Israel. Leviticus 11 and verse 3, among the animals. And if you've got your Bible, if you're not there, go to Leviticus 11 because the Bible says in verse 3, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud that you may eat. But as you're turning to Leviticus chapter 11, notice verses 29 through 31, which go on and add the large lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon, all of these things listed by name. And if you're not familiar with those, you can go to the Browns or uh, the Abels there, and they can introduce you to some of these pets that they have at their home that I don't think they're going to be eaten, eaten since they're their pets. But when you think about these type of reptiles that are listed, in the Old Testament, and I want to ask for a show of hands how many of us skip over Leviticus when we go through our daily Bible reading, right? It gets a little hard for us to read at times, but those things are listed there, and the main reason is salmonella. Reptiles will carry salmonella, and it can be a danger to people, certainly if they are going to be eaten. Now, number three, and one more under our dietary laws, perhaps the most well-known one by everyone in the world is the consumption of pork. And when we think about Leviticus chapter 11 and verse number 7, we see the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Many people in the world understand that Jews all right, don't eat pork. That's what people say. But do they understand anything about that, the scientific reasoning behind that? You know, we recently bought a new grill towards the beginning of the quarantine and got ready to start using that. And I was thankful that my dear sweet wife also brought home, as we bought that grill, a meat thermometer, right, that I could use to stick into the hamburger or chicken or whatever it is that I'm grilling to know that it has reached the proper internal temperature to kill all of the germs that are inside of that. Our pigs are taken care of a little differently today in some ways. But you're familiar with how dirty and nasty pigs are. That's not the only place that the Bible discusses swine in the Old Testament there in Leviticus chapter 11. But when we think about the fact that pigs are scavengers, they often eat and feast off of dead and rotting things, then we would understand they're going to be carrying those germs, and those germs are only going to be okay if it's properly cooked. I don't read any in, uh, instructions in the Old Testament about how to build the perfect fire and how to properly uh, roast bacon or cook things such as that. So God simply says, avoid the consumption of pork. Why does he say that? Well, here's the question as we think about our dietary restrictions. It's what's for dinner. Were these dietary laws just for fun? Was it something that God just made up? Or was it something that by divine inspiration... By divine guidance, God could say through Moses to the children of Israel, this is what you can eat and this is what you shall not eat. And then we can know in a scientific way that they will not have to worry about those same things that we even have to worry about today. Except for because of technology, we don't have to worry about the preparation of certain things. That's our question when it comes to the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible and the things that are included there. Our second main point is prescriptions in the Pentateuch. All right, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we're going to come back to this idea in just a minute, but they are admittedly, all right, we as Christians don't have to hide from the fact that the Pentateuch, the first five books, admittedly are not going to be an entire book on medicine. 
All right? They are not, it's not filled with simply medical prescriptions. They are not ancient medical textbooks. However, the Pentateuch, those books written by Moses, exhibit an understanding of germs and disease that, by the way, modern, so-called modern medicine, did not include for almost 4,000 years, 3,500 years after Moses would write these things, modern medicine is still messing it up. And let's talk about a few of those things. One of the books that we're going to discuss again in just a few moments is called None of These Diseases. That's taken from a verse in the Old Testament. It's written by S.I. McMillan and David Stern. And in this book called None of These Diseases, they discussed how many of the hygiene rules established by God for the children of Israel can still be applied today. That means that we can pick up our Bible, we can read what they did in regards to hygiene and still follow those things today. The first example, it deals with germs and labor fever. The man pictured on the screen there is an obstetrician named Ignace Simmelweis. He was of Austrian descent and in 1847, 1847, that's a long time ago, 1847, Ignace Simmelweis was an obstetrician and had his own labor ward. Many pregnant women checked into his labor ward, but 18% of them didn't, did not leave, never checked out. One of every six women who checked into his labor ward did not make it out alive. Now, why is that? Well, autopsies would reveal that these dead bodies of these women, after they delivered uh, their, their baby, had, were filled with infection, filled with pus. I don't like using that word. It just sounds as disgusting as we know for it to be, but they were. They were filled that way. And so he noted that if a woman delivered a baby using a midwife, then the death rate fell to 3%. Using a midwife, the death rate plummets to 3%. But if she goes to the foremost place of medicine at that time, where all science is being practiced, her chances of dying skyrocket. Why would that be? Well, Simmelweis tried everything to figure it out. He had all the women turn on their side. I can't remember if it was left or right now, but turn on their side to see if that would fix it. Women are still dying. There was a bell that the priests would ring when they came in at night. He thought, maybe the bell is scaring the women, and then they're dying. So he had the priests come in silently. Women are still dying. Finally, he goes along and he begins to observe his workers, the nurses and other doctors, and what they're doing. And what it turned out they were doing was they were working on a dead body. All right, They're looking at the women who died. Then they're going to a tub of bloody water, washing their hands, call it that, in bloody water, using the same towel as the person just before them, and then going over here and working on the women who are still alive, internally, of course, as they're checking what's going on with their labor and delivery. I don't have to be a scientist to understand that's not the way that things work. Of course you're going to have women who are dying because they're being contaminated by things from a dead body, and there's no purification taking place through all of that. Modern science, 21st century, we understand that. What doctor in his right mind would allow people to do that? But when we go back that, back that far, they still did not understand germs the way that we do today. To Europeans in the mid-19th century, germs were virtually a foreign concept. In fact, there's just there's so much material here uh, to cover, and we'll try to get through it. According to many of their most prevalent theories, diseases were caused by atmospheric conditions or by cosmic 
influences. That's how they thought people got sick. Are we, are we serious? That's what they considered to cause people to get sick and not just putting your hands on a dead person and then into a living person? So, of course, Dr. Simmelweis then orders all of his workers to wash their hands thoroughly in a chlorine solution after every examination. Three months. Three months, and the death rate fell to 1%. 18% to 1%. Here's the question. Had Dr. Simmelweis made a groundbreaking discovery, or had the Bible, many years ago, said it in Leviticus chapter... Excuse me, can you go to the next slide there, Heath? I don't know if my battery's died or not. Dr. Simmelweis had not made a new discovery when it came to that. In fact, the Bible had already given the prescription for germs and sanitation. When we think about what it would say, and many of you are familiar with that, there it is, Numbers chapter 19. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. Had Dr. Simmelweis stumbled upon something that should make him a prize winner? Maybe in a sense. Had the Bible already said it? Most certainly. Germs in favor, uh, labor fever. Number two, it's painful, but we're just going to have to talk about it, all right? Quarantine. Yes. Quarantine. I, I don't want to talk about it any more than you do. But the Old Testament record added, added another extremely beneficial practice to the field of medicine. And that is, if you go to Leviticus chapter 13 and verses 45 and 46, that when a person was to come and did come in contact with germs or even people who are sick, like the leper, notice what they're going to do there. Does it sound familiar? We're going to cover their mustache. And then they're going to cry, unclean, unclean. And then they're going to go and they're going to be outside of the camp. Covering your mustache. Staying away from people. Does that sound familiar in the year 2020? Is that new? Certainly not. Was it in Leviticus chapter 13? Yes, it was. We don't like to think about it, but concerning these practices, S.E. Massengill wrote in his book, In the Prevention of Disease, the Ancient Hebrews made real progress. The teachings of Moses, as embodied in the priestly code of the Old Testament, contain two clear conceptions of modern sanitation, the importance of cleanliness and the possibility of controlling epidemic disease by isolation and quarantine. All right, enough of that. Number three, circumcision. When we talk about medical prescriptions, we're all familiar with the idea of circumcision. In the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Now this was uh, a, something to allow Abraham and the children of Israel uh, to be descendants, to be special people, of course. But when we think about the inclusion of the surgical practice of circumcision, there's also scientific medicine behind it as well. Two things that really show it forth. Number one, circumcision can lessen a male's chances of getting certain diseases and infections. But not only that, number two, in addition, circumcision virtually eliminates the chances of penile cancer in men. And so circumcision is not required, and it was something that at the time was a, a representation for the children of Israel, but God, through his scientific foreknowledge, is able to tell that. In fact, not just that, but you would notice even on eight 
days. If you've ever heard this lesson before or something like it, you know that many studies were done. Children were dying because the prothrombin in their body dips between days two and five. If you do this procedure too soon, young baby boys can bleed and die or have brain damage because of that. But if you wait to the eighth day, not only is the prothrombin uh, enough and back to normal levels, but actually above. 110% from the day of birth, there is prothrombin in the body, and bleeding is not going to be as much of a concern. The question is, how did Moses know such detailed information regarding newborn hemorrhaging? Do you think Moses was a scientist? Do you think Moses just knew all of this? Or that maybe it's divine inspiration of the Bible? It's wonderful for us to consider these things. Number three, I simply titled it, If It, doesn't cure, or if it Will Cure You, It Will Cure You If It Doesn't Kill You. Now this is perhaps one of my favorite ones here, and this gets back to the beginning. Let's go back to our beginning question. Is the Bible infallible? Is the Bible the inspired Word of God, and is it infallible when speaking about scientific and medical things? Does the Bible contain the errors that fallible men, Dr. Simmelweis and many others, the errors that they practice for many years? Well, our lesson aim has been to show that the Bible is scientifically accurate and that helps prove that it's claimed that it is inspired of God. If you've got your Bible, look at Acts chapter 7 in verse number 22. Acts 7 in verse number 22. Let's get back to Moses for a minute. Moses, we all know, went to Egypt. It wasn't his choice. He was just a young baby, but he was raised and lived in Egypt. And in fact, in Stephen's sermon, his great sermon there in Acts chapter 7, the Bible records for us, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. This, this is not debated. No one stops Stephen and says, Well, wait a minute, Stephen, that couldn't be true. Uh, Moses wouldn't have been that way because it would be logical to consider that if Moses spent most of his formative years in Egypt, and it says he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, then he must have picked up on some of what they knew, especially in regards to science and medicine. So let me read a few things here for you and consider. Here's a fact. Moses wrote all five books, of the first five books of the Old Testament. Here's a fact. Moses lived and studied in Egypt. So think about this then. Would Moses, if he's writing by himself not by inspiration of God, but writing by himself, if Moses is writing under his own thoughts, would he have included some of this wisdom of the Egyptians in his writing? Well, probably. That's what he learned. That's where he went to school. He probably would have written some of the things that they had taught him. A couple of other facts. Here's a fact. The Egyptians were known. They were renowned for their progress in the field of medicine. Also, Herodotus records for us that King Darius, or King Darius, had a practice of keeping Egyptian doctors nearby. Let's not get too far from those Egyptians. They're known for studying medicine. Let's keep them nearby. So here's another question. Did the Egyptians' practices, did their medicine contain any damaging things or malpractices that did not help but actually harm the Egyptians? And that's what we're going to talk about. And let's think about this together. The Ebers Papyrus was the foremost source of the detail that we know about Egyptian scientific knowledge. That is, 
E-B-E-R-S, and then Papyrus, P-A-P-Y-R-U-S, the Ebers Papyrus. You can look it up. It was discovered in 1872, about the same time Dr. Semmelweis is studying, by a German Egyptologist, a person who's studying things of Egypt. Altogether, this document contained 811, 811 prescriptions that are put forth in that. They are salves, plasters, inhalations, gargles, pills, and yes, even suppositories. All of these prescriptions are found in this Egyptian document. Now, keep in mind the questions we just asked, and I'm going to have to ask you to hold your breath because here we go. Among the hundreds of prescriptions in this particular papyrus, there are disgusting treatments that cause much more harm than good. And if you're a little queasy, just hold on for just a second. Number one, last week, by the way, was last week, the week before, we went to the Abel's house and uh, for lunch on Sunday afternoon, walking on their deck, Campbell gets a splinter in his foot. I'm very thankful. Shannon has some tweezers nearby. We have a doctor there in Brian or uh, a medic, practicing medical person who can then take those tweezers and pull that splinter out. And although I think last night Campbell looked at his foot and asked if it was better, and it was better, of course, that night, he had a splinter in his foot. The Egyptians would say to draw splinters out in your flesh, you need to use worm blood, mole dung, and donkey dung. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that dung is loaded with tetanus spores, right? We don't touch feces or dung. In fact, in the book, None of These Diseases, they would go on to say that a simple splinter often resulted in gruesome death from lockjaw because of a splinter. But that's how they would treat it. Number two, remedies to heal skin diseases. Do you have any skin diseases? Probably some of you do. You would use a hog's tooth, cat's dung, au of samu oil, and berries of the exit plant. To heal skin diseases. Number three, the treatment for sore eyes, the urine of a faithful wife. I don't know who gets to determine that. We'll leave that to the Egyptians. Number four, the Egyptians were the first on the market to suggest that you use good and laudable pus. They thought infection was good. In fact, again, in none of these diseases, that particular book, Doctors McMillan and Stern said that well-meaning doctors killed millions by deliberately infecting their wounds. I don't know if any of you have driven through Nashville or around Nashville lately, but you see those signs, I think we may even have them in Chattanooga, that says that this is the fastest ER with a nine-minute wait. I think I'm going to bypass the Egyptian hospital, right? If I come there and I see a sign, hey, we got a one-minute wait, I don't care, I'll go somewhere else because I don't want to be treated by you Egyptian doctors. So let's go back to our questions very quickly. Did the Egyptians' medical practices contain anything that would be considered malpractice or would kill someone? Absolutely. Did Moses, writing under, or would Moses, writing under his own thoughts, include some of those same things that he studied under? We would say yes, that he probably would. So when we think about that, then in theory, every statement and medical practice that is recorded by Moses the things that he actually wrote, all of those could be implemented today. And it would be completely in accordance with modern medicine practices. And while there are some similarities between the Pentateuch and what the Egyptians said, are any of those malpractices contained in the Bible? No, they're not. I don't know what else to say when it comes to the inspiration of the Bible. Food, prescriptions, medical practices... 
All of these I can only sum up in one word, and that's amazing to me to consider all of these things. You might even add unbelievable, and it's all unbelievable except for this. Divine oversight remains the only possible answer. When we think about the inspiration of the Bible, we can talk about the prophecies of Jesus, and we might do that. We can talk about the manuscripts, and we might do that in the future. But when we even just consider science, germs, when we consider quarantine and, and circumcision, we consider things we eat and the way we prepare food, the only possible way that it can be explained that the Bible would have these types of things written, all things that pertain to life and godliness, I sometimes say it doesn't tell you how to do your taxes. Well, it certainly doesn't explain our tax code, but that's another sermon for another time. But you want to be a good person who practices medical hygiene? Read your Bible. That's as far as you have to go sometimes. Can medicine do better? Yeah, medicine could do better. The Bible doesn't talk about masks. It does talk about isolation and quarantine. It does talk about covering your mustache, being cover, maybe covering your cough. Does it talk about staying away from people who are sick, being careful what you eat? All of those things are contained in a book that the only possible answer is the inspiration of God. This study could go on for weeks, and especially just in regards to the idea of science. But I hope that as you consider the Word of God, and you think about these things, you don't have to be a scientist. You simply need to know who to go to, where to turn. But I'll tell you this, in even studying this, without presenting the lesson, my faith is built up because of these things. And it's so wonderful to consider the Bible and science. And we can leave, not only today, but go through our whole lives sharing these kinds of things with others. Because if we can establish that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then we can go forward to things like this. Then we can begin to talk about what the Bible has to say about salvation. And we can help people understand that if the Bible contains prescriptions for medical and physical problems, it absolutely contains a solution to the sin problem. And we should be sharing that good news with the world. But it begins with us. And as you're here this morning, maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you've not obeyed the simple plan of salvation. We'll be singing this psalm that's been selected that in just a moment we would encourage you with the encouragement of science to become a Christian. Not because there's something in the water. Not because there's some magic in my hands or one of our elders' hands or anyone's hands. But because there's God-given instructions. You can become a Christian this morning. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you've wandered away. You've walked away from God and you've turned your back on Him. Maybe there's sin in your life that is of a public nature. The beautiful thing about the church, because by the way, God gave us these wonderful scientific and medical ideas, but He also gave us a beautiful thing in the church, that we can come together and encourage one another. We can pray with you and for you and for one another that, we, that if you need to be restored, you would be. If you need to become a Christian, you would be. Even now as we stand together and as we sing. for Jesus and be always pure and good would you walk with him within the narrow road would you have him bear your burden carry all your load let him have his way with thee his power can make you what you ought to be his blood can cleanse your heart and make